1: Their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for January fifteenth, two thousand twenty-three. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me, as always, welcome Catherine Smith.
2: Greetings from Atlanta.
1: And welcome, Tim Shiflet.
3: Good evening, sir.
1: All right, excited about tonight's show on. Dr. MLK Day weekend Um, We're having on the show For I want to say the third time From the American Communities Project from Wall Street Journal from NBC News Mr. Dante Cheney knows Political demographics as Well if not better Than anyone in the country Um, And so we're going to talk to Dante In just a minute about a Lot of different things including His and Catherine's home state of Michigan But until then, there's a lot of topics we need to discuss, and one that has just been growing and growing that we've had on the list now for three straight weeks that we hadn't gotten to and we've wanted to get to is the biggest enigma in the House of Representatives, freshman representative from New York, George Santos. Um, George Santos was elected in a very persuadable district from the Long Island area, um, which it was a district that, that Joe Biden won in the election um, that has probably voted for Republicans in different races too. And usually those races are the kind of races that everything scrutinized and somehow the biography or the f- work of fiction that is George Santos' biography was not looked at. Um, I could go through, I think I sent you all the iceberg of just um, crazy lies he's told about his family, his parents saying his parents died in 9-11 and that horrific tragedy when they died later in the decade. I have no idea why anybody would lie about something like that. And so many other lies. If we listed all the lies, we well, couldn't talk to Dante tonight, Catherine. What are your thoughts on <laughs> what has happened here with the election of George Santos?
2: Well, it just seems like a complete failure in uh, any kind of background check on him uh, from anyone. Uh, it, it just, uh, it's kind of interesting. If uh, um, you know, I've been following it. But this afternoon, I just went to Wikipedia and read about it, and it's just this incredibly long list of lies. And and when you read them all together, it's just like, how in the world did this guy get anywhere? Um, and there were there were people that were suspicious of him, and and and. Um, but didn't really carry didn't really take it anywhere. So uh, yeah, it's like a kind of a amazing failure of of uh from the media to the opposition research and even to the Republican Party for not, you know, doing any any investigation of their own candidates. So yeah, it, it's kind of a remarkable uh, story.
1: Yes, um, Tim, he lied about things that that I don't even want anybody to lie about. Um, he lied about this volleyball career, and um, you know I'm I think volleyball is a magnificent support uh, sport. My daughter played it for seven years in school and like four more in travel, but he lied about it. Not only his um, exploits of being on the team, but these knee replacement injuries, which are just bizarre because no one at the age of George Santos has knee replacements from sports injuries. Those linger over time. It j- Just weird lies. Um, Tim, how did he make it through? Well, during the campaign, his opponent
3: tried to broached the subject, but nobody paid any attention to it. His opponent didn't have any money, no way to really throw it out there or it would gain uh, some traction. Some local media talked about it a little bit, but and and I imagine because the Republicans wanted to win the district, they didn't care that much. They, They pretend to care now, but I noticed a lot of his lies, like um, an issue would come up where he'd have a lie ready about it, you know, the 9-11 tragedy. That's a big thing in New York, and, of course, he had to get in on that. He talked about the the working on Wall Street, you know, with Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. Sounds good. Talked about going to Baruch College there and New York University. Sounds good. That he pers- you know attended a prestigious prep school. Uh, he even covered uh, animals, which people love, of course, with some charity called the Friends of Pets yeah. United. Too bad it doesn't exist. Um, he just went on it. Oh, you know when the Pulse nightclub shooting thing come out. Well, guess what? He had four employees that died there. Well, actually, no, he didn't. He didn't even know anybody that died there. And uh, you mentioned his mother who was killed on 9-11 and then suddenly she died 15 years later to boot. Uh, You know, he said that he was mugged and robbed of back rent money that he was on his way to pay during uh, a court proceeding where he was going to be evicted from his pocket. That man was ready with a lie on everything, David. And uh, and you know what he, he says now? Well, everybody lies on their resume, and that's his defense. You, you think that
1: one will hold up, uh, David? Yeah, there have been people that have told a tenth of the lies, uh, maybe even 1% of the lies, and didn't get their coaching job at Notre Dame. Um, and then lost their one <laughs> at yeah. I'm talking about Tortoey. Yeah,
3: that's right. <laughs> that was one of the
1: most famous cases about embellishment. Um, mm-hmm. Bill Clinton yeah, lied and, and, about and one Agnes, thing and got that. impeached. <laughs> yeah, and then you, you Tim, you mentioned the Pulse nightclub. I, Catherine, have we ever found out? Apparently, he is um, um, gay Republican uh, or gay man, and but then. People have questioned that if he's actually lying about that and he's really, really heterosexual. Um, you know, for years we've had the other case where people are unfairly outed of the you know out of the closet. But is he is he lying? And he really, you know, you know, what I'm trying to get at what in the world is going on there? Oh, I didn't
2: hear any <laughs> of that. I didn't hear about that. Um, yeah, what? what that would be an interesting uh, turn of events Um, because he was running against a gay candidate too. So that was one of the sort of uh, points that was made during the, I guess during the campaign is it was two gay candidates, but who knows? I mean, (laughs) I I think that uh, obviously the next question is how long does he last? Yeah. Like do these lies do these lies uh catch up with him, and does something happen, or does he just get to continue to be a representative It's very uh yeah well very curious, yeah, that we get into that
1: and I guess we can go there and then we can go back to how you know you know somebody didn't catch this before, but from my understanding is. There is no mechanism to impeach him in New York, um, where he's a representative or, or I should say recall him um, that he his only thing is is they could he could have shame and resign or he has to face the voters in the next next election um, and I guess you know that gets onto the Republicans, whereas of course Kevin McCarthy wanted to vote for the speaker's election and may Need it later, and they could all call on him to resign, and then he could just choose not to, and there's nothing they can do either. It seems like they could not give him any committees. Um, that would be a punishment for him. Tim, what do you think the recourses are? Well, I mean they
3: could they could kick him out of Congress with a you know a floor vote not going to happen. Speaker McCarthy has already said. They're not going to do anything in that, you know, the voters have decided and will decide about him. Uh, the truth there is, the you know, Mc- McCarthy only has 222 heads to count. He does not want to lose one and risk losing that congressional seat because I'm sure the voters, if they were to uh, – go at this thing again they would be pretty irate with the republican party and by the way yeah. the local republican party up there has already demanded that he resign but he's just he's refusing to resign and, and if how house, uh, house gop leadership stands with him and doesn't take any action and according to the speaker they won't that's it but then there's more ain't there david there are some investigations going on
2: I mean, there's so many.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when you keep telling all these lies and covering things up, then people are going to keep digging and people are going to keep finding. Um, You just have to wonder, though, is we know that there were plenty of races in which money was funneled into races that were going to be very hard to win. And had somebody Mm -hmm. given some money. Or the DSCC, somebody put some money in to investigate this guy They would have found this out, and this was a winnable seat You know, we talked about how organized, you know, the Democratic Party was overall And they were, Most, and you know, we're talking about since the election But this is a case where somebody dropped the ball And should have spent some money in this district to find out more about this guy Um, Mm -hmm. So, we may come back to it, it was more as we learn more in future weeks. But right now, I want to welcome to the show Mr. Dante Cheney. Welcome, Mr. Cheney.
0: Uh, hi there. Thanks for having me on.
1: Oh, glad to have you back. Um, well, I wanted to ask you um, right off the bat, you're, of course, with the American Communities Project, and you all had a very robust effort um, this time, and I wanted to find out – um overall what things did you learn in the project um in the 2022 cycle
0: um well you know it's i think it's harder first of all to draw and we we always want to draw national conclusions and i think that that makes perfect sense but midterms are different and i think this midterm, midterm in particular was different this this was there were not a lot of rules to this midterm it's um, turnout was up in some states, but not up in others. So, you know, in, in Michigan, for instance, you had an, you had record mid uh, record midterm turnout, but you obviously had big drops in states. You had low turnout really in states like New York and Florida. It's, so it was really place to place. Even, even the lessons from, from what we saw from state to state, like did college kids turn out or not? Depends on the state. In some states they turned out like gangbusters and in other states they didn't. And, it's just a real mixed message midterm. I mean, the one thing you, that you can definitely say is it didn't follow the usual characteristics of a midterm, particularly a first term, uh, first term midterm for a sitting president, where normally there is midterm, there are large losses in the House, there are losses in the Senate. We didn't get that this time, but but the un, the stuff going on underneath those those kind of big headlines was was really a mixed bag.
1: Yes. Now you mentioned Michigan, and and there's so many states that are interesting, and I know. Catherine and Tim have plans to ask about those. But one of them was Michigan, where – I'm yeah. sorry, not Michigan. I'm talking about the jump up there. Uh, New York. Uh, let's talk about New York. Uh-huh. Um, New York was a place where Democrats did not do well. Um, they still held on to the governor's race. The Senate race <laughs> looked close. But there was probably right. enough House seats that flipped that may have decided the House. Um, what went on at the House level
0: in Michigan I – mean, I'm sorry, New York – and it, it, so it's really a very – it's interesting because the results were very different in terms of who won. It's a similar story, though, to Florida. There just wasn't big turnout. People didn't turn out. And in New York, what that meant is Democrats really weren't turning out. I think that, like, there was this thing, feeling that Hochul might be in trouble. She wasn't, right? I know it was, it was close. I mean, it was close for New York. It was six points and I think 300,000 votes. That's not close. But it's close for New York for a Democrat much closer than it normally is. And what is that about? That was about there just wasn't a lot of enthusiasm among Democrats in that state. And that was a real problem. I think you saw, you know, we'll get to it probably in other questions, but like Florida was a similar thing. Not a lot of enthusiasm among Democrats, but for a different reason. I think the feeling in Florida was those races weren't going to be close. So, you know, we'll talk about these counties we were watching, but one of the outcomes of the counties you're watching is one of them was duval which is where jacksonville is and it underperformed big time for democrats why was you know it's always like that county flipped what does that mean it's like in a midterm when you go from a presidential to a midterm it's flipping is really something very different it could be very different anyway it's always about who turns out but when you go from a midterm from a presidential to midterm and counties flip or states flip it's it's more often than not it's really about turnout. And there just were not a lot of enthusiastic voters among the Democrats in those states for, for various reasons. New York, and then I also think Florida, and then I think maybe also even California. Just not a lot of fired up Democrats in those states. And that's why when you look at these national figures and what the national House vote looked like, Republicans did, you know, well. I mean, it's they, again, they picked up, what, 10 seats, they flipped, you know, it's really a five seat margin right now. But like it's the same story everywhere. It's like there were these big populous states where the Democrats basically just didn't get the turnout they wanted.
1: Yes. Now, heading into the um, election, there was a lot of talk about how in a lot of these special elections, the Kansas referendum, that voters, Democratic voters were turning out on the issue of freedom of choice and mm-hmm. reproductive choice. And in some places, I hear what you're saying. They did turn out, but some places they didn't. Why, in any right. kind of research you've heard, why was that not a more motivating factor across the board um, in November?
0: Well, I think what the court really did when it struck down Roe, essentially, was said, we're going to throw this back to the states. And frankly, if you live in a state like New York, you're like, well, abortion's not going anywhere. as right here. It's safe where it's not and i think same obviously is true of california <clears throat> so where did you see bigger turnout for, for example that record turnout in michigan that we saw what was that about well look i think that whitmer was going to win anyway but the the huge turnout there was about putting a right a constitutional right to an abortion in the state constitution and that just turned democrats out in big numbers and so i think in states where abortion, the right to an abortion was threatened, was more likely to be threatened, and obviously Kansas, uh, you know, much earlier in the cycle, just to, you know, just to vote on abortion was a really good example of this. Like, holy, holy moly, we're going to lose this right. Um, let's turn out, and we're going we're to go out to the polls, and we're going to make sure we, we basically enshrine this right and keep everybody safe. Or in states where they were trying to, you know, restrict abortion more or make it, you know, introduce heartbeat heartbeat bills or basically weaken abortion, you'd get people to turn out to kind of lock things in place. But or try to help or or save abortion in those states. But in states like I think New York and California in particular, they're just like, you know, like, look, it's like those states, I think, are obviously pro-choice. They want abortion to stay legal, but in their states, they're just like, abortion's not going anywhere in New York. Abortion's going to stay legal here. So it's it's not that they don't care about it, but it wasn't as much of a of a motivating factor, I think.
1: Yes. Well, I may have some more questions in just a bit, but I want to be fair to Catherine and Tim, who have questions. Um, Catherine, about y'all's home state, and then Tim's going to talk about one of those counties in particular, if not more, from the American Communities Project. Um, Catherine?
2: Hey Dante, thank you for being with us tonight. It's great to have you on again hey, um, good be i you know I'm originally from Michigan. I'm from Ann arbor and mm-hmm. uh I have nothing against Michigan state though so <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: fine that's we're all we're all, we're all happy we're all um, from the mitten it's all okay yeah
2: that's right um i want i i mean there's a lot of uh you know sort of Puzzles and information uh curiosities out of michigan from november yeah. but i i think um one of the key questions or um surprises i guess is whitmer's um big win without mm-hmm. a lot of uh, without with low turnout from the detroit area so what mm-hmm. what what's what happened there like did she just have support from all across? I haven't looked at all the numbers, but we do know that Detroit had lower lower turnout. So, so what what have yeah. you learned about that?
0: Well, and to be clear, you know, obviously margins, Democrats obviously still huge margins for Whitmer in Detroit, but they didn't get the number <laughs> of votes like normally. There have been, you know, obviously if you're from Michigan, uh, you know, Jim Blanchard lost really the governor's race in 1990, because Detroit didn't turn out. I was covering that race when I was there. Detroit didn't turn out. That meant he lost the state. So what was different this time? Well, I think I will say uniformly around the country, there is one big warning sign in this election, and you see it in Michigan, and you see it in Wisconsin. Is another place you see it, which might happen to Mandela Barnes. The black vote in big cities did not turn out. It did not. And it wasn't a Michigan thing. It is a national thing, and it is a real concern for Democrats. It's something for them to be worried about what was different in Michigan. What was different was <clears throat> because of abortion, number one. And number two, look, the Republican candidate, Tudor Dixon, is just was she's just a terrible candidate. She's just, let's just make no bones about it. She was an awful candidate. She didn't really have any experience. Her positions were, you know, she, she did not favor allowing abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. I think life of the mother, she was okay with, but even that, she was, it wasn't completely clear for a while. And so what happened? Well, all the suburban vote in particular and the college towns in, in Michigan came out heavily for Whitmer. I mean, so Macomb County, which is north of Detroit, where I grew up, has become a real stronghold for Donald Trump. And there are counties like it all around the con- country. It's what we call middle suburbs um, in the American Communities Project. Um, they voted for Whitmer. Uh, all around the state of Michigan too. Like Macomb County flipped. It was a Trump County that voted for Whitmer. Why is that? Dixon was not a great candidate for those people. Number one. And number two, abortion really did, I think, fire up the suburban vote like suburban women. And, you know, let's be frank, suburban men and suburban women do not, did, did not want that right taken away and they wanted in the state of Michigan to enshrine it. And that was really what locked it in. Now, I do think the bigger, and that's what that was about, you know, it wasn't just Whitmer, like Whitmer wins, Benson wins, uh, the attorney general, jeez, um, oh, forgive me, Dana Nessel wins, they all win, and they win comfortably, and they win because abortion was on there, and I think that suburban vote, college-educated voters in particular, but, but the, the suburban vote in general, was just came out and said, no, no, we're, we're not doing this here. Okay, we're there. We and this is a weird. I mean, you're from Michigan, so you know, it's like we're not Indiana. We're we're <laughs> going to be legal in this state. That's what it's going to be like here in Michigan. And you know, and then obviously, I think uh, Ohio too is is more conservative than Michigan, but they were just like, no, we're not doing this. And that's really what led to, you know, it's not just Whitmer, Nestle, and Benson, but they they own both houses of the state. Yes, yeah. they have the state so house was- and the state senate for the first time in 50 years. Yeah. That's big, dramatic stuff. That really is. And, and I think you can really tie it back to poor, poor candidates on the Republican side, because it wasn't just Tudor Dixon, like up and down the ballot. The, the attorney general for the state was terrible. The Their secretary of state candidate was really terrible. Um, bad candidates plus abortion led to huge wins for Democrats uh, in Michigan.
2: So, in a bigger question about that, do we? I mean, you know, we you were talking about New York and about Florida, mm-hmm. and then to a lesser, uh, uh, in comparison, Michigan had Michigan had mm-hmm. abortion, so that was the big yep. issue that people came out to vote for. Whereas in, um, well, let's just use New York as an example because Florida, Florida's just a you know, excuse uh, Florida's mobile. a
0: unique case. Um, it's a unique case. Yes.
2: Yes, that's a nice way to put it. Um, but in New York, you, you were saying that there wasn't anything, you know, that important to vote about so people didn't show up. So do we have to – I mean, how do we get people to vote then? Do we have to have, like, dramatic issues on the uh, on the periphery of the ballot every time so that – to draw people out to vote? I mean, it just seems like a yeah. – um, a difficult uh future if that's how we get people to vote
0: i think it's a real challenge uh, no 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 i think it's a real point i think you know the other thing that wasn't really an issue particularly in a state like new york and california right was the election denier issue was not an issue there like that was not that was not a challenge in michigan that was on the ballot too like they basically ran a slate of election deniers at the top of the you know, at the top of the at the you know the statewide races in Michigan, and voters were just like, no, we're not doing that. I mean, we we refuse to do that. So what will it take? Well, I'll tell you one thing that would turn voters out again, and that would be Donald Trump. <laughs> he's, he's on the ballot. Democrats are going to turn out. It's really interesting to think. But I mean, this whole look, 2016, Trump won in part because. Um, He motivated some voters and did. He turned out some voters who normally didn't turn out. But the other thing, when you really look closely at the vote, a lot of Democrats stayed home. Uh, Democrats didn't get the margins they needed, particularly out of wealthy suburban areas, because those voters did not like Hillary Clinton in particular. And they thought, look, there's no way this Trump guy is going to win. Hillary is going to win, but she's going to win without my vote. And then Trump won. And then when you had the election in 2020, Trump Trump, more Trump vote did come out. He's like he even got more people out. He got more people excited yeah. to vote for him. But he also motivated all these people before who were like, we didn't want this. Like, you know, we we didn't like Hillary, but this isn't what we, this isn't what we were looking for. So if Trump's on the ballot, they'll come out. I, I do think I did a story with, with NBC where we were in western Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh. And they were talking to black voters in Pittsburgh and it was really interesting because I sat in on, um, and Yamiche was there, uh, Yamiche Alcindor, I was uh, reporting with her. And we, She was doing an interview. And the, this uh, group of, back, of black voters from downtown Pittsburgh were just like, why should I vote for Democrats? I elected Joe Biden to change things and I hated Donald Trump and we had to get rid of Donald Trump, but like, they're not giving us what we wanted. This isn't what we wanted. So I'm not going to vote this time. And it's just like, and now, you know, and it's interesting because you think like, well, if that's really the way you feel, aren't you concerned you're going to get another Donald Trump if you really hated Donald yeah. Trump that much? Isn't that a fear? But like his name wasn't on the ballot, and uh, they needed to voice their displeasure with, as far as they were concerned, with how Democrats weren't giving them what they thought they were voting for. I mean, I guess that,
2: I guess you. You know, those of us who have been doing this for a long time think of it as a, you know, a marathon, and every little, um, every little bit of progress we appreciate. But if you're not paying that close of attention, it's hard to
0: yeah.
2: It, it's hard to mo- be motivated.
0: It's really yeah. That it, it really anyway, is. and anyway. like the the one. And the one thing everybody, like, you know, you guys and me and all the people I work with here in D.C., we view these issues as they come up, and we think that everybody views them the way we do. But it's our job to think about politics, and all we do is think about politics. And, well, that's not all we do, but it's too much of what we do. And there <laughs> like are all we too do. <laughs> many people, right, right. There are people out there living their lives, and, like, politics – bumps into their lives every once in a while, or, you know, like with Donald Trump basically forced it into their lives all the time, which they didn't like, but, you know, otherwise politics isn't something that's a big motivating factor in their life. Most of the time, that's, you know, kind of how it is for them.
2: Yeah. Okay. I'm going to pass it to Tim. If I have any more, more questions that may come back around. Thanks sure. so much. Absolutely. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, good
3: Tim? evening again, sir. And thank you for yep. being with us tonight. Um, You featured – you highlighted several counties um, during the course of the election, of course. Yeah. And I've lived in Chattooga County here in Georgia for 40 (laughs) years. And there's not much about this county I don't know, and and I know most of the people here, too. And I say that to say before the election, I I, I knew this would be an 80-20 Republican county. Uh, cool. uh, and, and I could practically point to who was going to vote for who. That that that's the way this <laughs> county is. So, um, it, it's a typical rural county with with one elected mm-hmm. Democrat, and and he's the coroner, you know. And and the Republicans are just waiting <laughs> on him to retire. They'll they'll take that too. But but at any rate, right. I have two questions for you. Why was sure. Tatuga County picked for the project? and numbers What did you hope to actually learn here that you didn't already
0: know? I think the reason we wanted well, I know the reason we want to go to Chituga. The big reason to go to Chattuga was um it was a representative county for this group of rural, rural counties, particularly rural southern counties, but rural northern counties too. There's we there was a county in Michigan we went to that was um it was really the same story. And we watched the governor's race through the eyes of that place too, which is Mossoset County. So why do you go to those counties? Well, what you want to know is for us, this is a midterm election post Trump without Trump on the ballot. What happens to those voters? Do they still come out? Uh, cause Trump did really motivate a lot of voters to come out and vote. And like without him on the ballot, cause he's gone now, I know he's kind of there like, in different sorts of ways, but like not really on the ballot. What does the vote look like? And you're right, it was absolutely fascinating. He <laughs> um, Walker got exactly what Trump got in Chattanooga. Exactly eighty. Let's see. Was it? Let me just double check and make sure. Eighty. He did slightly better. He did eighty point four versus eighty point two for Donald Trump. Um, right. So so there you go. Yeah, there's your 80-20 split. The one thing that's interesting, though, and this is something to think about, uh, you know, obviously it's a midterm election and, and you know, there's always going to be a fall off. But it went from 10,000 votes producing 10,000 votes in total to less than 7,000 votes in total. So you, it, it was a 30% drop off in, in turnout in vote production. I shouldn't say turnout in, in vote production. That's interesting. Now, you know, does Herschel Walker win if Chautuga and counties like it keep those margins but bump everybody up? Maybe. Um, maybe not. I don't know. It would have been interesting to see what would have happened. But, like, that was what we wanted to see. We wanted to see minus Trump on the ballot, do you still get those massive, massive, massive Republican margins? And the answer is yes. You do get, you do get a drop-off in the vote overall. Mm-hmm. However, and that was, that was uh, detrimental, obviously, to, to Walker.
3: It, but yeah, but you know, with the drop off, of course, I might add, also came the drop off in Democratic vote, and the reason Absolutely. for that was, yep. the lack, was the lack of competitive races, including yep. in our governor's race, and and with Reverend Warnock, we only have like eight percent of our vote is is black, so right. that wouldn't drive the Democratic vote out either. But I, it, it is interesting that you had picked our. Our little county as as one of your counties, and <laughs> no. we, we we were glad for the exposure, to be honest. Now, in
2: it's interesting studies, place,
3: very interesting county. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: In your studies, of course, you mm-hmm. look at political divides, shall we say? Yeah. And yep, yep. of those divides, obviously, the rural suburban divide. It, I. I've been following politics and, and active in it since the late 60s. This divide is as bad as I have ever seen it. It's like two separate countries almost now. Yep. Yep.
0: It, it, it's that it's, it's a hopeless situation now. You're asking as, as a question. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to say anything's hopeless. I mean, I, I don't want to say anything is ever hopeless. Um, Um, uh, it's funny because sometimes uh, I, like you, have never seen it like this either. And sometimes Uh people will say things like, well, country's always divided. What do you mean? It's like, you don't understand. You need to go talk to some voters and ask them like very basic questions about how the world operates and what they think reality is, what they think truth is essentially. And you'll Mm -hmm. understand just how, how divided these places are. Um, just a, like a short digression, we we just, the American Communities Project just received a huge fund, uh, grant from Robert Wood Johnson, uh, $2.4 million over the next three years to study division in America, strictly on this topic. We're going to dig into the topic of using the American Communities Project and these types. what's What are the divisions in the country? What's driving the divisions in the country? We're going to do survey research and go out in the field and talk to people. And theoretically, part of that grant is to try to figure out how to close some of the divides or at least narrow them right that would be that would be a plus i am mm-hmm. ultimately hopeful that what we're going through right now in this country is a extremely painful growing pain period or i don't even know maybe that growing pains isn't the right word but like it's it's a time of kind of dramatic change um in, in a lot of ways and as we're going through that a lot of things people people don't like what they're seeing out of, you know, quote unquote, their country, what they think their country should be. My, my hope, I guess my belief and my hope is that we're going through a very bumpy time and we will eventually come out the other side and things will look and feel a little better. Um, I'm, but I, I say that with this note on top of that, which is it's not going to happen fast. You know, we're Mm -hmm. in for a really bumpy, we're in for a very bumpy decade or, or, maybe 15 years, maybe even longer. I don't know. But we have been through these periods in the nation's past. Like if you look at where we were in the late 1800s, we're, we're in one of those times right now, right? Right before the Civil mm-hmm. War, right after the Civil War, just like that's where we are. And we eventually came uh, out of those. The, yeah, the one big uh, difference I will say now is the media, the way the media works now is a huge part of the problem, uh, social media and, and the news media.
3: My, my fear, and maybe something that you can research, is that rural America, economically at least, is yes. dying. We lost. Yes. We lost over a thousand <laughs> population since the last census, and that's bad in a county of twenty-five thousand. We have no infrastructure. Yep. We don't have a hospital. We don't have a theater. Yep. For crying out yep. loud, we don't have a crystal or a bowling alley, and we and more importantly, we don't have any real a lot of industry in this county. We're a commuter county. We have to go to another place to work, and I did for years. And I, and yep. I'm just concerned about that.
0: Um, well, and I'll yeah, and it, 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 it's not alone. You know, that's the thing that's really uh-huh. disturbing. Like more than half the counties in the United States lost population over the past. The past wow! Second, more than, more half. than half. Wow! Yeah,
3: that's yep. scary. Okay, I want to turn to one individual before wow. I send you back to David because a guy that really <laughs> interests me is Big John Fetterman. Um, <laughs> now, I believe it was James Carville that said that you divide Pennsylvania three ways: Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, yeah. and Alabama. Uh, yeah, and, and and that that's really their voting pattern. And he's a self-described progressive, but yes. somehow I saw in the data that he made big inroads into areas that Donald Trump also ran well in. How in the world did John Fetterman manage to do that?
0: Well, it's, it's – progressive. Progressivism is an interesting thing, right? Because like it uh-huh. can mean a lot of different, it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And frankly, I mean, I, I don't think I'd ever use the word progressive to describe what Donald Trump, Trump, Trump ish policy. no. no. <laughs> however, however, having said that, having said that, say this about Donald Trump, Donald Trump is about one of his ways he tries to reach people is I'm going to help you people by giving you money. Like I'm it's like Donald Trump is not about fiscal conservatism or or, you know, or look, um, I just I want to run a really tight ship budgetarily. He doesn't care. Right. He really doesn't. And I think that what Federman was able to do was he was the right face for the message. And if you focus on the economic parts of the, of, the, of the progressive, the liberal message, the economic parts of it, about like exactly what you were saying, even about Chautauqua and places mm-hmm. that feel left behind. If you talk about we're going to do what we can to help you and we're going to, you know, and, it, and it, it does mean that the government's going to get involved and it's going to help you out. If the right person is saying that, I think it works. Because, look, frankly, for a lot of these communities, and this is definitely true with rural Pennsylvania, Chautauqua County, but rural Michigan where I grew up, it's the same thing. These places are all losing population. And this idea that like the the, the private sector is going to save these places is just like, that, look, that, how and why, right? Like how is the private sector save a remote community without a lot of infrastructure and without an educated populace, like without an educated workforce to draw people in? What is the draw for the private sector? So for some of these places, the answer is going to be like, the, the government the public sector is going to have to step in maybe it's infrastructure projects maybe it's other things and that message could have some resonance in these places and when you when you take that kind of message and you pair it with somebody who looks like john fetterman mm-hmm. you can i think you can you can sell that that's that's saleable people people the, the, moderate republicans Now i'm not saying like you know, deep, deeply, deep-dyed Trump Republicans, but moderate Republicans or or independent voters, whatever we want to call them, you know, that message will resonate with them, and I think he was able to do some of that. Uh, it was now, it's pretty interesting stuff.
3: But but uh, on the other hand, Donald Trump was unable to sell his preferred candidate, Mel Manaz to find uh, <laughs> your yeah. voters candidate. in the way. He was he is. Terrible oh.
0: candidate, though, right? I mean, hey, he, yeah. was like, <laughs> he was he was just like, he just didn't, he was awful. He was just such a better <laughs> candidate. It was like, good. I mean, like, look, you know, say what you about Mastriano, and he was, you know, he was an election denier, and he got throttled, right? He just got destroyed uh-huh. because he was too far. Mm-hmm. But, like, Oz, like, man, it, how, how the hell does Oz resonate with like rural voters in Pennsylvania? He's <laughs> not from Pennsylvania. He doesn't look or act like any of the people in Pennsylvania. I mean, you know, I talked to a pollster and he was saying like, look, this is a guy who hasn't given up his Turkish citizenship. Like, do you really think that's going <laughs> to resonate with rural voters in a state like Pennsylvania? I don't think so. And he was right. You know, and it's, it's yeah. a Republican pollster, by the way, you know, yeah. he was a terrible, terrible candidate. And like, you know, could a better candidate have done better? I'll put it this way. If Oz hadn't, or if Fetterman hadn't had the stroke, uh, you know, which really I thought raised a lot of questions and, and concerned a lot of people, he would have won by more. I really think he would have won by huh. more.
3: Yeah. Well, I thank you for that,
1: sir, and I'm going to pass it back to David now. David? <laughs> yes, just one last question, but it, it goes in a lot of directions, so you can pick any part of this. For cycle after cycle, We've heard that the swing voter is dying or is dead, that it's Mm -hmm. straight-ticket voting up and down um, the ballot, which it certainly is more than than cycles past. But we had different places all across the country, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Nevada, in which the U.S. Senate and the governor's race split, and they split in different directions in different states at the same time. Any of those states kind of pick why there were swing voters?
0: Why there were swing voters? I think a couple things. Why do they materialize
1: in those states in this cycle?
0: So so a lot of those states, there are – people registering as Democrats and Republicans is declining, first of all, in most states, in both parties. Like there are more and more people that are, quote, unquote, independent. The other place where you really saw it was independents – voting uh, in Arizona, right? Voting heavily. That was one where everybody was sure Carrie Lake was going to win. She did not. And she didn't because of, you know, independent voters. Now, a lot of those independent voters are real moderates. A lot of them already lean one way or the other. Um, I, I think that straight ticket voting is becoming very difficult in the country right now because the parties are in such a state of flux. Well, one party in particular, the Democrats to some extent, definitely Democrats are trying to kind of get a handle on who they are. But like Nothing like what the Republicans are going through right now, and like what it means to be a Republican. I mean, look at look at the candidates. I mean, like and I'll give you a really good example of this: Ohio. So in this in this election, uh, you had a Senate race and you had the governor's race in Ohio. Um, and when you when you look at uh, when you look at the governor's race in Ohio, let me just look at it really quickly. You know, you have DeWine winning by 25 points, 25 points in the Senate race in Ohio with J.D. Vance won, J.D. Vance won by seven. Um, those are both Republicans, uh, and they are really, really different ideas about what it means to be a Republican. That's not to say that Mike DeWine is some liberal or even like super moderate, but he's not Trumpy. Um, so part of what's happening is depending on the candidate. Even if you are particularly a Republican, you might look at that candidate and say, like, I might be a Republican, but I don't know if that guy, that guy is not the Republican that I am. And, in fact, I will say the counties we looked at, you know, we we spent a lot of time looking at counties that uh, meet the press. And um, Delaware County, where I just spent some time last week, actually. Delaware County, Mike DeWine wins Delaware County by looking at it right now, 27 points. And Delaware County is just north of Columbus. It's extremely well-educated very wealthy, and very Republican. And Mike DeWine wins it by 27 points. J.D. Vance wins it by seven. That's Mm. a 20-point gap among two Republicans Mm. in the same place with the same voters. What does that tell you? That tells you that what it means to be a Republican in Delaware County can vary greatly from person to person. Um, one last thing really quickly, like one thing we're doing to answer a lot of these questions, particularly some of the stuff we're talking about in this, this uh, conversation, we are, as we're kicking off this project, the study division in America, we're going to four different communities around the country with 25 words. And we're just saying, and they're very broad. They're just like democracy, community, liberal, conservative, first amendment, second amendment, um, personal responsibility, work. And we just say, what do these words mean to you? And when you get out there and talk to these people in these different places, we've gone to two places so far. I've been in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We've been to Delaware County, Ohio. We're going down to Warren County, Mississippi next week. And then we're headed out way west to um, uh, a uh, Native American community out in New Mexico. The answers are really different. And it's all this question of, and I think this falls in with the party idea, what does it mean to be a Republican oh, and what it means to be a Democrat, frankly? It varies greatly from person to person, and depending on who's running, people may want to play or not want to play that role um, when it comes to going to the ballot box. Hmm.
1: Yes, such fascinating information tonight. If, um, just the last thing, if our listeners have heard them, they want to know more about the American Communities Project. They want to know where to follow you and read you on social media or elsewhere on the Internet. Just give us all those um, informational um, links, if you will.
0: Sure. The, the The American Communities Project is American Communities, uh, all one word, AmericanCommunities.org. It's based at Michigan State, which was our little joke earlier this evening about Ann Arbor versus East Lansing. <laughs> um, I am on Twitter. I am on Twitter at um, D. Cheney, uh, you know, um, uh, at sign dchinny at dchinny um, and the American Communities Project on Twitter is at AMCOMPRO. It's very inelegant, but it's what we add. Uh, so at A-M-C-O-M-M-P-R-O. And you can kind of keep up with most of what I'm doing, I think, through looking at those things.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks again for joining us and keep up the good work across the country.
0: Thanks, guys. Thank it's a really fun conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, uh, bye-bye.
1: All right. That was Dante Cheney of the American Committees Project. Also works with NBC News, works with Wall Street Journal, and then probably gets published a lot other places too. Um, just a fascinating ground-level political researcher um, where he really talks to voters and, and gets a different level of insight. Well, guys, we've got about 12 minutes left, and one story that is new That is obviously – it's a big story on its surface, but it's a big story based on what came out from documents of Mar-a-Lago is that they have found documents, I know, in Joe Biden's garage and President Biden's office, I believe. Uh, Tim, I think you've got a better handle on where all the documents and possibly what type of documents have been located. Kind of give us the rundown to set this story up.
3: The initial batch was discovered by uh, Biden's attorneys who were cleaning out his former office at the Penn-Biden Center where he kept an office after his time as vice president from 2017-2019. And they were packing up some boxes, and they found 10 uh, documents there that were uh, classified. Uh, then, uh, they expanded, this was on November the 2nd, six days before the election, let's remember that. Uh, then, um, they expanded their search to be more thorough and, and they went to, um, the president's house, Delaware house, um, Lake House up there. And in his garage, they found, uh, one classified document and then in the house itself, uh, couple of days later, five more for a total of 16 uh, documents. So that's where we are now with the document search.
1: Okay, so let me ask you this question. They found the 16 documents. um, Right. And this is the kind of thing we would suppose that if a president wanted to – Slip these things back in They could have But instead they did Alert folks And have come clean on this if you will correct
3: Right they, they immediately With the initial discovery Did what they were supposed to do By law which was Contact the National Archives Then when The second grouping was found The National Archives Uh, did what they were supposed to do, which was contact the um, Department of Justice. And the way we found it out was through the mainstream media, finally got hold of it and uh, put out a story about it. And uh, the president and and all of his staff, his attorneys, everyone, uh, offered their full cooperation. Uh, to the archives and to the Department of, of Justice. So that's why there's not been any FBI raids or anything like that. Uh, so that, that that's where it's at.
1: Catherine, I guess you're kind maybe getting to what I'm uh, – seeing what I'm getting at with that last line of question. There's an old saying, the cover-up's worse than the crime. By no means should the 16 documents have been taken. I don't even know, you know – if you hand those back over, what that arises to. But there was no cover-up. There was coming clean. Do you think that story will be lost on right-wing media sources and many Republicans when they discuss these two incidents? Because they will definitely be juxtaposed with um what happened in Mar-a-Lago earlier in the year. Yeah, yes, I
2: think that there will you know they will be uh, magnified and compared to the Mar-a-Lago uh, circumstances um, even though like you said they're very different um, but you know uh, classified documents shouldn't be shouldn't be uh, carelessly handled and it from all appearance it, it seems like they were carelessly handled so that's bad and uh, I'm glad that they came forward I'm glad I mean it sounds like as soon as uh, the attorney realized there were there was a classified document he immediately you know called in and did you know it took the necessary steps so that's all good you know, it's all been handled properly in terms of the discovery, but our leaders need to be more careful with those classified documents. We don't know what they are, obviously, because they're classified, but the assumption is if it's a classified document, it has some information in it that doesn't want need to be, that shouldn't be revealed. And the fact that it's in someone's garage is, of concern. So I'm glad that they did the right thing. I'm disappointed that they handled that someone, whether it was uh, then vice president or president Biden or someone else on his team. I'm I'm disappointed that they handled them badly.
1: Yes. And Tim, let me ask Uh you another question. Do you think this is going to get to where we now check President Obama, President Carter, President Bush, President Clinton, Vice President Quayle, Vice President Cheney, Vice President Pence, uh, Vice President Gore. Are we just going to have to go and and make sure that this wasn't a systemic issue at this point? Well, no,
3: right now we're not going to go systemic. Probably because this is going to be a political issue for a while and a hot one. And it's just a week ago, the Republicans were uh, falling all over themselves in disarray. And suddenly they have themselves an issue that they can rally around and they can change the conversation, which they badly want to do off of things like the way the speaker's election went and George Santos. And some of the junk they're passing that ain't gonna see the light of day in the Senate. And that's and their investigations they're starting up and 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 now they can talk about Joe Biden and his mishandling of documents. And there are gonna be some questions that the president and the administration is gonna have to answer, David, like uh, for instance. Why was the initial batch found on November the second and just now reported to the Republic?
1: Yeah. Um and and Catherine, let me look here, let me uh refresh and make sure we still got Tim with us. Um, Tim has dropped all of a sudden, so I I know he's kinda left a question with me. Um I think that politically there's gonna be two things. One The Republicans may say, oh, this is, um, you know, tit for tat, whatever. If this Joe Biden did it, whatever Donald Trump did is not wrong. Uh, But then you can look at the way the two people handled it, and that's not going to look good for the Republicans. I kind of think the Republicans don't need anything to get outraged about. We know that from the the gas stove controversy that came up this week. Um, You know, they're going to bring something up. No matter what, um, if they want to, and so they're gonna, you know, they're gonna, you know, really get into this. But then the question will be: Is how many voters does this move from one way or the other um, in the next election that may come up? And of course, we're pretty far away from any kind of federal office election, other than some special, you know, house seats that may come up. Catherine, do you think any this will move um, any voters in any real way?
2: No, I don't think I don't think it will have impact on voters. I, I mean, I think that if it was just one or the other, just one, if it had just been Trump or just been Biden, it might. But I think even though they're not equivalent circumstances, I think there is some equivalence there, if that makes sense. Yeah.
1: I, I think I think the big winners out of this are going to be, you know, your Fox News folks, uh, Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and, and other and other um right wing news sources, you know, the talk radio folks. I guess again Sean Hannity. I don't know who they got to replace Rush Limbaugh. But whoever, you know, runs those kind of shows that needs three hours of programming on radio, needs an hour on T V, those kind of folks they got exactly what they needed um, out of this. Well, we didn't even get to the um, big controversies like gas ovens tonight. We didn't get to Sarah Huckabee <laughs> Sanders acting so boldly and, and banning the probably very often used term of Latinx in Arkansas. Uh, but we'll, we don't know what will come up next week. But we do know we have a great guest uh, joining us for I don't know how many times. Now, a frequent guest of the show, Steve Seizinger, He's going to come in from uh, California and talk to us about, among other things, the 2024 uh, U.S. Senate race in California, which may or may not be an open seat. But until then, from the Kudzu Vine. We are
2: the heirs of that first revolution with a strong...